the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, class, uh, with uh, school in session here, we should ring. have a bell ring in there, Richard. I should have brought the bell in here. Um, just to give you an example of some of the agenda taking place that goes beyond just so-called academic freedom in the classroom for um, school teachers, but to even the manner in which the influence has taken place in the authorized textbooks. Uh, I'm, I'm going to quote on one of them. This comes from page 11 of Kyle Olson's new book, Indoctrination, um, just talking about uh, manufacturing. And uh, this uh, this particular passage, and I quote, uh, Rose was right. Some passages subtly put down the United States. Uh, for example, here's a quote. Companies in Japan make reliable televisions and radios. German factories make some of the world's best cars. Some companies in the United States are very good at making computers. Did you catch that? In America, only some companies excel. Now, it's amazing. I mean, to be sure, um, Kyle, we have seen some amazing advancements in technology by both Germans and by Japanese firms. A lot of that technology that had its roots and genesis right here in the United States, and yet it seems as if we just kind of we kind of take third position, third seat there to other foreign countries. Right, and that was... Um that, pas- that, uh, that passage that I quoted there was from a column by a Washington Post columnist um, who did this analysis of a book called Social Studies Alive, uh, which is a, a third-grade textbook um, geared towards very young kids, and it pushes this, this one-sided, biased um, agenda um, uh, uh, against, frankly, an anti-American agenda. And so it, it was interesting because... This book, Social Studies Alive, has come under a lot of scrutiny because it is biased. Um, it, it only focuses on um, a, a left-wing perspective. And even this, this lip, self-described liberal um, uh, columnist also came to that conclusion. And it's a great example of a textbook like that, a biased textbook, getting into the classroom. Um, and then the establishment, whether it's the teachers' union or a, a school board or the administrators, then defend it, and they say, "Oh, there's no bias in it," and, and you know, and this is this is the type of information that kids should be learning. You know, it's amazing because the the inaccuracies and in the agendizing of education goes from the subtle to outright demeaning and obvious, as you cite there in that particular passage. Uh, you know, no no acknowledgement of the fact that the automobile was invented in the United States, the computer was invented in the United States, uh, that uh, the, the uh, tubes, uh, the precursor of uh, transistors, invented in the United States. The uh, U.S. gets no credit for that. It just says that some companies, some companies do a good job. Not an excellent job, just a good job. So, you know, I, I guess to all of you that work for, uh, you know, some boring companies like IBM and Hewlett-Packard and uh, uh, Texas Instruments and others, uh, just, uh, oh, well, too bad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
And that, that is what is such a shame. And, and what I find disturbing about this is that, is that uh, uh, teachers will use this textbook, and, then, um, and, and what is most disturbing about this textbook in particular is that it leads, question, it leads students to a particular question where then they have to give essentially a predetermined answer. Um, and so it will, it will say, it, it will talk about um, child care as a right and how there are some countries, uh, like Vietnam, for example, that gives child care as a public service. And shouldn't the United States have that as a public service, too? And so here you are as a third grader, and what do you honestly expect a third grader to say? No, we shouldn't do that. Um, and so what it's doing is it's, it's setting these kids up to give an answer um, that unfortunately the the activists in the classroom want to hear. And of course it leaves out a lot of the the important facts such as uh, somebody has to pay for that uh, child care and that in communist countries like Vietnam and I know because I've been there uh, yeah they're providing that uh, that child care for free. It's also a way in which they introduce and indoctrinate young children into the benefits so called of communism. Right. Isn't that convenient? And so and that's, that's the thing is so do you honestly expect a, a third grader to say well, how would that impact my my parents' taxes, or what you know? And and, and so you can't honestly uh, expect a, someone, a, a young child of that age, to be thinking in those terms. But it, but what I show in the book is that these types of issues, um, whether it's it's that type of issue or social justice, math, um, or whatever it may be, is being pushed on kids at younger and younger ages. So the stage is being set then for political and social activism in public schools as opposed to what heretofore had been education. That's exactly right. And because there, there's this mindset uh, in, in public education uh, by, by many people within the establishment that they feel that it's their duty and their right uh, to use their classroom to push this personal political agenda. And they view um, their role as turning students into... Um, agents of change. And so we shouldn't just be equipping them for life and making sure that they, um, that they have knowledge so they can go, to, uh, go into higher education or a career or the military or do whatever they want to do. Uh, we need to turn them into agents of change. And to me, that is what is so disturbing about, uh, about public schools today. And let me tell you how far some of that uh, that change factor takes place. I'm going to quote again. This is page 38 of Kyle's new book, again entitled Indoctrination. And I quote, this is quoting an article uh, of Howard Zim, and he writes, Granted, it's good to have historical figures we can admire and emulate, but why hold up as models the 55 rich white men who drafted the Constitution as a way of establishing a government that would protect the interests of their class, slaveholders, merchants, bondholders, and land speculators? Close quote. So we have now reduced the founding fathers of the most successful and freest nation on earth, one of the few nations that has a problem with people illegally getting into the country as opposed to trying to escape. Are you listening? North Korea, Vietnam, etc., etc. Uh, and and we've, we've suddenly now done an absolute 180. Yeah, granted, there were things about America in the 1700s that we probably wouldn't be very prideful of today, but the fundamentals of why and how this nation was founded and upon what basis is something that is held up as a pride point in, in nations all across the world, apparently except our own. 
That's right, and, and it's such a shame because Howard Zinn, um, who, who that quote is from, it is held up um, on, in, in leftist circles um, in high esteem of, because he is this historian who has, you know, this, uh, has recast American history, and this is what he is producing. And unfortunately, he actually he has produced textbooks, and his textbooks are in uh, U.S. history class classes in American high schools today. And so this is the type of, of um, quote-unquote, history that high school students are, are being fed. And so it's no wonder that we're seeing our, our personal liberties, um, our self-governance, um, our, our uh, free markets being eroded um, because, you know, people uh, aren't uh, appreciating them. They're not seeing the value in them. And they're thinking that, you know, America is to blame. Uh, free markets are to blame. And so we have got to change those and, and fundamentally transform America. Well, I've had uh, teachers in the past and concerned parents even send me copies of passages from history books that have characterized Mao, for example, Mao Zedong, as the great liberator of China. Mm. Yeah, uh, much like, I suppose, uh, Stalin liberated the Russians, uh, Kim Jong-il liberated the North Koreans, and Hitler liberated the Germans. We'll come back to more of this startling agenda of what's going on in some circles of public education, not about educating children anymore, but rather indoctrinating them as miniature agents of change for their agenda. Our conversation tonight is with Kyle Olson. The book is called Indoctrination, How Useful Idiots Are Using Our Schools to Subvert American Exceptionalism. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. With author Kyle Olson. How deep and widespread is this agenda? Well, let me give you another example from his new book, Indoctrination. Uh, teaching lesson plan calendar uh, that um, helps teachers highlight for children some of the important dates in history that they need to be mindful of. Um such as August the 5th, which represents the 30th anniversary of Ronald Reagan breaking the Air Traffic Controllers Union. Or uh, August 10th, the 50th anniversary of the U.S. spraying toxic herbicides in Vietnam. Um, February the 17th, notable for being the birthday of Black Panther Party founder Huey Newton. Uh, let's not forget November the 20th, Transgender Day of Remembrance. Um, how about November the 26th, Buy Nothing Day? Uh, April the 29th, the 20th anniversary of the start of the Los Angeles Uprising. <laughs> People rioted not for Rodney King. They rioted to steal. And that's the uprising. Of course, May 1st is International Workers' Day. And least, let us not forget May 20th, which uh, marks the anniversary of Cuba's independence from U.S. occupation. Yeah, nothing in there about uh, uh, the 4th of July, 1776. Uh, dare we talk about such things as the American moon landing, Pearl Harbor, uh, any of those important events. No, it's all got to have some sort of a agenda behind it, Kyle. I'm sure they just ran out of space. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, so many important I, days to remember. Yeah, nothing about Constitution Day uh, or, or anything like that. And I think, again, it's a great example of um, putting a resource in front of teachers and then raising those questions, because then there are other uh, another aspect to that uh, social justice uh, planning guide is a, a question for each day. 
and so they're just incredible um, questions about you know, just dealing with these social justice issues and all of that sort of thing. And so, what I fear happening, what I fear is happening, is that um, our classrooms are turning into these social justice laboratories where um, activist teachers are turning our students into uh, fellow activists. Um, to change America. Well, and the other interesting thing that, that dawned on me, I read one passage in, in your book later on uh, when you talk about the Great Depression and you quote from another wonderful piece of revisionist history here, uh, the old adage, those who forget history are condemned to uh, repeat it. Uh, as the curriculum of many of these history books has a very strong pro-union driven uh, rev- re- uh, revisionism to it, uh, let me just, this one quote here, and you know, here we are in the middle of the greatest recession that America has seen, um, uh, perhaps overshadowed only by the likes of the Great Depression of the late 1920s. Um, and if you try to understand what caused the Great Depression and the, the crash of October 29, uh, here's where one history book squarely puts the responsibility. And I quote, Soon, Ford Automobile produced more cars than people could buy. Other business owners made the same mistake and workers were fired. So many people lost jobs that the 1930s were called the Great Depression, close quote. So it wasn't the stock market crash that pulled the U.S. economy to its knees, that prevented people from having access to the credit and cash they needed to buy these things, that forced companies to fire workers. It was the greed of the companies themselves that produced more goods than where they were capable of selling. Talk about revisionist history. That's right. Isn't that, it's incredible. And uh, there's another example uh, talking about unions where the California Federation of Teachers has produced many lesson plans um, that teachers are using today. And one of those was how to start your own uh, small business where they created the the Yummy Pizza Company, which, you know, on the face of it, you go, well, that sounds interesting. And I I personally, I come from a small business family. Um, so I know the dedication and the hard work that goes into uh, especially starting a small business but maintaining one. Um, but what I quickly found as I read this lesson plan was that 40% of the lesson plan dealt with starting the union for the employees. And so suddenly it was obvious what this lesson plan was about was actually was was the union component. And uh, And so the other interesting thing that I find is that so what happens is school districts and states have requirements. So um, students need to get uh, you know X amount of math and X amount of um, English and art and that sort of thing. And so what uh, what the activists will do is they insert these different types of things to meet the requirements. So in other words, in this yummy pizza company example, um, the the art component was creating membership cards and designing a logo for the union. Um, and so it's, they are just, they're absolutely relentless in, cre- in, in inserting this personal political agenda um, into curriculum. And, you know, again, I, I have no problem if teachers wish to organize and unionize and are looking for, you know, workplace standards and higher wages and things of this sort. That's fine. But don't bring that in as an, as an integral part of your job and recruit your students um, in, in the effort to try and then, you know, uh, be, uh, be minions for change. And, you know, maybe some case you can get the, you know, bunch of six-year-olds to go out and lobby for higher pay. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, well and speaking of that, 
that, there's an example in the book where um, a, a third grade uh, teacher from Milwaukee Public Schools in Wisconsin um, actually had her students write letters um, to the school board complaining about the budget cuts. And again, these are third graders, so these are what, eight-year-olds, maybe nine-year-olds. Mm-hmm. They can hardly, uh, they don't even know about their family budget, let alone a, a multi-million, if not billion-dollar um, enterprise that is a, a public school district. And so she had her students write letters complaining about the budget cuts. And it's it, what, what we see around the country is example after example of, um, of students being indoctrinated, um, students being used as pawns, unfortunately, to do the dirty work of the union. Well, I recall even talking to a young man that was a recent high school graduate, and we got on the topic of World War II, and um, I made some comment about Pearl Harbor, and the date December 7th did not resonate in his mind at all. Um, And after some protracted discussions, uh, he revealed to me that as best as he could recall, yeah, he kind of remembered a couple of details about it, but that they probably spent not much more than a half hour talking about Pearl Harbor and World War II and the American involvement in same, both in the uh, the Pacific Theater helping to uh, uh, to fight back the spread of uh, the Japanese uh, onslaught, as much as as well as what we did in in Europe against the Germans, and uh, and yet though had great recollection of of uh, great detail, uh, spending what he characterized to be about a half a week talking about the results of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Of course, the events that precipitated all of that, uh, he knew nothing about. So, you know, uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg? In this case, neither, I guess. That's right. And, and, and that is what is, is shameful, is we're losing our history. And our students are not coming out of out of school uh, with just very basic knowledge about what America has done for the world and what free markets have done and what capitalism has done. And instead, uh, we are to blame. And, and and the example of the atomic bombs, you know, we are to blame um, for for you know the horrific events that took place um, because um, you know we're racist or we have this imperialist uh, agenda or, or whatever the case may be. And so uh, kids are coming out of, and, and to me this is the irony, is these are government schools. I mean, you would think government schools would be, if anything, would be indoctrinating students to be a pro-America, but that is not what is happening. I mean, they're coming out of government schools believing that America is to blame, uh, believing that free markets um, and uh, and uh, capitalism are to blame for third world poverty because we go and we exploit uh, countries and we exploit people and we we uh, rape and pillage for resources in all of this. I mean, it's 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 an absolute shame, um, but it is going on in classrooms around the country. And so again, I say, um, and my question for parents is: Do you know uh, what your students are, what your kids are learning? And if you don't, you need to get educated toward that end, because after all, folks, we are paying for it to the tune of over $55 billion a year in the great state of California alone. We've just touched the surface of, of a few of the excerpts of Kyle's new book, and it's a page-turner, it's an eye-opener, and if you've got kids that are attending government schools or grandkids, uh, get educated, would you? And maybe you're going to think twice about uh, what you need to do, and I know it's a tremendous sacrifice to a private school or homeschool 
homeschool a child. Uh, but maybe uh, once you read the book, you'll find out it's high time you do so. Kyle Olson, thanks so much for being with us. The new book, by the way, published by Arthur House. And uh, you can get copies through Amazon.com or also information through Kyle's website at Kyle, K-Y-L-E, Olson. O-L-S-O-N dot O-R-G. Again, the book Indoctrination, How Useful Idiots Are Exposing Our Schools to Subvert American Exceptionalism. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. An interesting new book out that examines America's enemies and our use of love for the underdog that ultimately trashes America and American power is penned by Michael Prell. Michael is a columnist with the Washington Times. You can also read his musings at townhall.com. He served as crisis manager for the 2003 Northeastern Blackout and a strategist for the Tea Party Patriots and has authored now a new book and called Underdogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. And, uh, Michael, good to have you on the program tonight. Thank you for having me here, Craig. I appreciate it. Uh, First, define, if you would, for us the title here. We know what the underdog is. In fact, American, I think largely Americans, have always enjoyed rooting for the underdog. Uh, But when you speak of underdogma in your book title, what do you mean by that? Well, you're right. America was founded on an underdog uprising against a more powerful adversary, the British. But underdogma is far different. Underdogma is the widespread and corrosive belief that in any given issue, whichever side has less power, the underdog, is automatically considered righteous simply because they have less power. And whichever side has more power, like America, is automatically considered wrong simply because they have more power. And it doesn't matter which side is actually right or wrong. All that matters to those who practice underdogma is which side has less or more power. And in my book, I show how this underdogma shapes many of the issues that shape our world today. And I answer the question, I ask the question, you know, why is it that some Americans embrace American power and American exceptionalism, while others feel the need to bow down and apologize for it? And then finally, I give readers the tools to fully embrace the idea of American exceptionalism unapologetically and to beat back and defeat this corrosive belief system that I've called under dogma. Let's spend some time analyzing this. You mentioned about the very roots of America, that is the triumph of the the underdog over the overdog, in this case, uh, the the oppressive kingdom of uh, England uh, against the the colonialists here in America. Um, This, of course, is something that I think has kind of set the stage for an interesting uh, interesting dichotomy here in that as we move through then the subsequent growth and expansion of the United States in through the Industrial Revolution and modernization and then eventually, of course, the outcome of the Second World War, uh, America uniquely has always been on on the side of being ourselves the overdog, and yet we've always tended to have kind of this soft spot in our hearts for the underdog. Well, because America was founded on that underdog uprising, it's part of the national character. But here's where underdogma is different. Underdogma says that the first Americans were good because they were relatively powerless. But as soon as America became big and successful and powerful, America became bad. So power, power equals bad and weakness equals good. Yeah, I describe it as an axis of power between the power-haves and the power-have-nots. The little guy can do no wrong even when he does wrong. And the big guy can do no right even when he does right. And this is where it separates our traditional notions of right and wrong and wipes all that out and says, no, 
it only tilts on whichever side has less power or more power. Right and wrong, objectively, don't matter. And this is where moral, moral relativism comes from. Boy, not only that, but the sense of entitlement, uh, what yep. we're seeing going on with uh, this, this, this sort of the, uh, the Robin Hood, you know, shift of taking from the rich and giving to the poor that we're seeing uh, just, you know, blatant throughout government today. Um, this is really a dynamic that goes beyond, you know, simple power struggles between the United States and other nations. We're even seeing this dynamic at play within American society and certainly with the American politic. So much of the mentality that has crept into the American psyche on this topic is impacting our lives in so many levels. I mean, we've seen going back to Johnson's Great Society, the notion of entitlement creeping in, even the idea that if someone has... has come up by their own bootstraps, so to speak, and they've worked hard, they've gotten an education, they've sacrificed, they've put in long hours, their family has sacrificed. Now, as a result of the fruit of their labor and blessings, they have been successful at life, they've been able to enjoy a modicum of success and some wealth. All of a sudden, somebody comes in and now is of the entitlement mentality that because you have and I have not, what you have, you must give to me. Not only have we seen that dynamic play at play here, I think, in underdogma, there's also the notion that we tend to suddenly, as uh, author Michael Perel points out, blame the overdog and immediately cast doubt on on he or she or it, um, even in the face of reality that would demonstrate that it's actually the underdog that's the evil one here. You spend some time in the book on this point. Michael, and I think one of the easiest things that we can demonstrate with this notion is a lot of what we've seen in, in particularly in mainstream, so-called mainstream and liberal media post 9-11. Uh, th- this notion that somehow, well, what's taken place here is, you know, people that are victims of Americans' foreign policy and abuse and America standing up for totalitarian regimes like the Shah of Iran for so many years and, and even supporting Saddam Hussein, at least during the time that he was at war with with our enemy Iran to the point where what happened to uh, over 3,000 people on 9-11 was not the fault of the terrorists. It was really the fault of America. And it sounds crazy until you read their own words. And let me just reset the frame for people. This belief under dogma is a reflexive belief that the little guy is good, not because he's good, but simply because he has less power. And the big guy is bad because he has more power. So in the attacks of 9-11, there's a whole chapter I dedicate to this, and it's just shocking what happened, because when that happened, the whole underdogma equation was turned upside down. America was the underdog, and we clearly saw America's enemies were the enemies. There was absolute moral clarity for about six hours. And then it started to shift, and you saw this underdogma happening. And I take readers through step by step by step. So there's two parts of underdogma. Number one is the big guy must be the bad guy. Did we see that happen after 9-11? Oh, yeah. First, America was clearly the victim. And then we saw it creeping and creeping and creeping to maybe America brought it on itself. Maybe it was America's foreign policy. Maybe it was this, maybe it was that. Until it got to the point where high-profile Americans were blaming America for causing this to begin with. And the other side of underdogma is to deify the underdog, no matter what he does. Just because he has less power, he must be good. And if you think it's crazy that they tried it with the terrorists, they did. They went step by step by step. I have direct quotes 
from mainstream American media calling Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who planned the attacks, quote, thoughtful about his cause and craft, and quote, folksy. And I have five major American media personalities who referred to the 9-11 terrorists as courageous because they had the courage to fly plane loads of innocent people into buildings filled with other innocent people. That shows you the power of underdogma to completely sidestep the rational mind and get people to do these and say these horrible, horrible things. Well, to be sure, I mean, to suggest at any level that Khalid, Sheikh Khalid Mohammed, the, the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks is folksy, is like suggesting that, I don't know, a Joseph Stalin was just kind of a teddy bear. Yeah, you know, it just misunderstood. Water a whole population. It's just bizarre. You know, where, do, where does this stem from? Because I'm old enough to remember a time in this country, Michael, when it wasn't always like this. I mean, post uh, another major event on U.S. soil, and that was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th of 41, uh, Americans didn't uh, suddenly rush to say that, well, you know, it must have been that thing about, about America cutting off Japan's steel supply so they couldn't continue expansion into China and into Korea and the other nations neighboring countries there in the east that must have been the thing it's really our fault you didn't hear that what's changed no, there was a there was a tipping point and i peg the beginning of under dogma to the berkeley student protests of the mid-1960s now why did it happen then and this was when so just to again reset the frame this is not people being against bad people for doing bad things this is people being against those who have power, even if they're virtuous. What they're doing is they're fighting the power. And in Berkeley in the 1960s, that's when the, quote, fight the power movement began. And the reason why it began at that time, and I go into a whole chapter on this, is because that was the first generation that came of age in a country that was a superpower, where they didn't have to fight for sustenance and fight to get by like their parents did. They were born literally at the top of the power heap in the world. And ever since 1989, all Americans have been the only ones at the top of the power heap. So this was the first generation, and when they came of age in the 60s, they were given all this power, and suddenly they were looking around, and they started to feel queasy about it, maybe apologetic about it. And that kind of thing is a luxury only afforded people who live in relative power and safety. People around the world don't bow down and apologize for power. They want to take it from you. You know, that's the reason why I wrote this book. I mean, while some Americans take exception to American exceptionalism and American power, America's enemies have a far, far different view of power in their own words. Let's take Osama bin Laden at his word. He said their view of power is this. When people see the strong horse and the weak horse, by nature they will like the strong horse. That's precisely the opposite of under dogma. And, you know, one of my favorite writers is Mark Stein. And he writes about America's demographic disadvantage to its enemies. They're having more kids, we're having less. In Under Dogma, I show how those who practice Under Dogma are putting America at a philosophical disadvantage to its enemies by championing the weak horse and demonizing the strong horse. And the consequences of that over time are dire for America. Well, to be sure, particularly since we're no longer using as the yardstick um, uh, things as righteousness and morality and goodness 
and fairness and fair play, uh, the kind of um, the kind of measuring sticks, the yardsticks that we were taught were measurements of, of virtue and wholesomeness when we were kids. At least I certainly was. Now all of a sudden, uh, we uh, we move to the notion that it's simply based on this one size. Yeah, it almost um, almost then in the end favors the bully, doesn't it? What it does is it shows it, it shows you the power of this belief system to literally throw out our notions of right and wrong. I mean, we've all heard of moral relativism, but it's not it's not an accurate term because it's only relative in one direction. You don't see moral relativists automatically, instinctively taking the side of the powerful. <laughs> it's always on the side of the little guy. They're always excusing the actions and behaviors of the little guy, saying, "Oh, it's because of this and because of that." No, I mean, some things are just plain wrong. Well, look, for example, uh, uh, one of the things that that has always frustrated me, and we've seen this rear its ugly head once again um, in in the wake of the recent uh, recession, and that is the idea that we see people that, uh, well, you know, so-and-so got caught stealing today, and it's because of the high unemployment in the region and because there's a lack of parity in in employment opportunities, and so as a result, people steal. And I've argued, well, let's go back to the last time that America really suffered economically, and that was not the Great Recession, but the Great Depression, where we had 25% of the of the working public unemployed, uh, where we had no social network available, there were no uh, safety nets in place, Social Security, unemployment, none of that existed. And yet, very few incidences outside of the outlandish stuff like organized crime that would lead to things like, you know, the, the Ma Barker and uh, John Dillinger, you didn't see average Americans going out to steal just to feed their families. No, they went out, they sold apples and pencils on the street corner, they bartered and traded, they did what they needed to, but we didn't see America become a wholesale group of thieves. And so I would argue that when we look at thievery, it's not indicative of somebody who's who's stealing because they're hungry and trying to feed their family. It's indicative of somebody that is living in sin, that's a criminal, and as a result is behaving in a criminal fashion. Absolutely. And those people who, who dismiss it and say, well, they're just stealing because they're poor, they're profoundly insulting all the poor people in the world who don't steal. You know, I grew up poor. I'm pretty sure some people in the listening audience right now did, too. And the daily decision you make to be a good person, those who practice under dogma throw all that out the window and say, no, 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 if you're the little guy, you can do whatever you want and you're good. The little guy can do no wrong even when he does wrong. That's under dogma. Now, this, we're ta- what we're talking about here is, you know, power haves and power have-nots and rich and poor. It's power imbalances. And one way to deal with power imbalances is to, you know, get angry or spiteful or or turn against those who have achieved success and power and just champion the underdog, the little guy. And what you're doing is you're celebrating his weakness. That's one way to do this deal with power imbalances. That's under dogma. Michael Perel, my guest, the book Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Michael Perel, my guest today. You know his writings from townhall.com as well as the Washington Times. He's got a new book out called Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. Help me understand sometimes perhaps the, the dynamic here. You know, when, when we are the overdog and yet we demonstrate um, a, a propensity toward favoring the underdog, clearly those stakes are at odds. I wonder if some of this goes back to a sense of, of misplaced or confused guilt. I mean, sometimes we see Americans, even when we're the ones who clearly, even to the casual observer, Michael, have been injured, yet we take on a position supporting the underdog almost in a fashion of self-hatred. Why? I'm guilty occasionally of being a member of the reality-based community. So I'm going to stay factual. And there are people out there who feel this guilt. Okay, so I say to them, look, America is the number one power in the world. By definition, there must be one power in the world that is number one. So if you're so guilty and you feel so bad about it being America, fine. What are the alternatives? What are the alternatives? I mean, I look at the entire arc of history, and I see clearly, and I'm sure you do too, that this American moment is a miracle of history. It's something to be treasured. We've all heard that phrase, freedom is not free. I would add to that, I would say American exceptionalism is not free. It's something that needs to be earned and fought for every day, and we've seen that so clearly over the past two years. I would say that it's not inherited so much as it's fought for and won every day by Americans, and I say they've earned it. And maybe that's the point that's that's un- misunderstood. I think, for example, I started my day today by reading a op-ed piece arguing that we just ought to dispense with all of this. And the writer went on to talk about how the Star-Spangled Banner has so many references to war and, and you know, why should we be talking about war when we're going to enjoy a, a pastime? Of course, ironically, they're talking about this ahead of football, one of the most violent pastimes that we Americans enjoy. And yet I thought to myself as I read this article, how absolutely completely disconnected with history is this writer who doesn't understand that he's exercising his First Amendment rights to argue changing the lyrics or dispensing with altogether uh, the national anthem because he's offended by the war overtones, and yet it is the war overtones to which the national anthem refers that shed blood, that bought the very freedom that he enjoys to make such an opinion known publicly in the first place. What irony. And you see the power of this belief system, this under dogma. Do you think for a second that in any of our enemies' countries there's currently people sitting themselves saying, you know what, um, we probably shouldn't sing that song that has stuff about it, you know, about killing people in it because it might offend uh, someone's sense of... It just doesn't happen. And that's what happens when you have this queasiness about power. And it comes from this natural reaction. It's, it's a gut reaction. It's non-thinking. It bypasses the rational mind. It makes you automatically think that the powerful must be bad and the little guy must be good. And why would you think that? Well, you think that because every time you turn on a television show, a movie, the evening news, or even from the President of the United States, you hear over and over and over that when you achieve wealth and success and powerful, you're bad, you're a fat cat, you need to be demonized. And when you hear this for your whole life and you mix that in with that that shared human experience that we all have of being a small and powerless baby as children, it just all comes together into this love-hate relationship with power that a lot of people who practice under dogma have actually learned how to manipulate inside of you and actually show you how that's done quite disturbing, and it goes right to the whole government takeovers. I know we're running out of time, 
But if you want to know how the government did all those takeovers, let's go through the takeovers. Big health insurance, big banks, big lenders, big insurance, big student lenders, big Wall Street fat cats. What do they have in common? They're all big fat cats. They're all big powers. And the government knows how you react to that. They just put the word big in there. They claim they're going to stand up for you, the little guy, and they use it to take your power away. This is a deep-seated belief system, and I want you to be able to see it clearly so you can rip it out of yourself because they're, they're using it to manipulate you right now. Well, I watched in a news story that I shared with my audience before you joined me tonight uh, concerning the push toward removing the opportunity for, quite frankly, the U.S. taxpayer to pay for abortions through the new health insurance law. And one of the Congress people arguing against it immediately makes the argument that, well, we thought Republicans were in favor of making government smaller. Obviously, this is an attempt for big government because they want to put government back in the bedroom once again. And, of course, it, it's, it's the very careful selection of certain words that they know is going to um, elicit a certain response. Yeah. Even though what may be communicated makes everything communicated there before and afterwards makes no sense whatsoever. If we pick on certain buzzwords, there it is. Even going back to the the example you share in the book, and we talked about this even related to sports a moment ago, the universal dislike that some have for the New York Yankees. And if you drill down as to why do you hate the Yankees so much... I think the honest person would simply answer, that's because they win so much. And they typically always beat my team. Therefore, I'm in favor of any team that's fighting or, or, or going up against the Yankees. I'm so happy you brought this up because I love that we close with this because how do you satisfy those who practice under dogma, right? The only way to satisfy them is to stop being powerful. America's tried everything else. Foreign aid, liberated Europe, fund the United Nations, the most charitable nation in world history. Every time there's a disaster anywhere in the world, American helicopters are there on site saving people's lives. And by the way, you don't have helicopters if you don't have power. And the only way to satisfy underdogmatists is to stop being number one, just like Yankees with Yankee derangement syndrome. The only way to satisfy the Yankee haters is for the Yankees to lose. And I don't want America to lose. And that's what I show people in this book. You can actually embrace American power and exceptionalism because you've earned it. Good point and an excellent one to end on. Uh, it's a compelling book, Michael. We appreciate taking some time out of your schedule to share your insights and the hard work that went into this. Uh, by the way, of course, um, I mentioned that uh, Michael is also a colonist for uh, townhall.com, which is a, a sister property of uh, this Salem radio station. Point you in that direction to read his insights and musings. The book, again, called Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. And the book available through Amazon.com and also information on the web at under-dogma.com. That's under-dogma.com. And our thanks again to Michael Perrell for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three stars.
Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.